I'm Jessica. And I'm Allison. We would like to welcome everyone to April's More Than Books Library on the Go podcast, Episode 5. The focus of this month's Library on the Go is mysteries. So for today's topic, we're going to look at Agatha Christie's mysterious disappearance and how it resulted in her creating one of the best characters as a means of revenge. Agatha Christie was one of the most well-known and loved authors in history. Her play, The Mousetrap, holds the record for the longest-running play in history. Over 2 million copies of her books have been sold around the world. There have been 46 movie adaptions, the most recent being the 2022 Death on the Nile with Kenneth Branagh starring as Perot. There have also been 141 television adaptions, many starring David Suchet as Perot and Joan Hickson, Geraldine McEwen, and Julia McKenzie as Miss Marvel. To start on our topic, let's first take a look at Christie and her disappearance. Christie published her first book in 1920. Therefore, by the time she disappeared at the age of 36 in 1926, she had already published several novels, including The Secret Adversary and The Murder on the Links. Thus, her disappearance was headline news around the world. According to historians, Christie left her Berkshire home in her car on December 3, 1926, and was not seen again for 11 days. Her disappearance sparked one of the largest manhunts ever mounted. It did not take long for investigators to find her car. It was abandoned next to a chalk pit near Gearfold. Well, more accurately, on the edge and almost falling off the cliff into a chalk pit. There was no sign of Christie, however. Her luggage, coat, and driver's license were still in the car. Newspapers worldwide began to speculate that the author had committed suicide. It wasn't until December 14th that Christie was found in a hotel in Harrogate, but was unable to remember or provide any clues as to what had happened or how she ended up there. Police believe that Christie left her home and traveled to London, crashing her car en route. She then abandoned the car and boarded a train for Harrogate. Upon arriving at the spa town, she checked into the Swan Hotel. Oddly, she checked in under the name Theresa Neal, which happened to be the last name of her husband's mistress. There have been many arguments as to the reasoning behind Christie's disappearance. Some people have claimed that it was a publicity stunt, while others, such as biographer Andrew Norman, argue that she suffered from a fugue state and had fallen into a psychogenic trance, which resulted in amnesia brought on by trauma or depression. Any of these can be true. However, I tend to lean more towards the trauma angle. This is due to the fact that in the last few months before her disappearance, Christie discovered that her husband husband Archie Christie was having an affair with his much younger golf partner Nancy Neal and was now asking the author for a divorce. This added to an already traumatic time for Christie due to the fact that her beloved mother had died four months prior. Her mother's death and her husband's actions over the next few months would lead to the deterioration of the author's marriage, resulting in the events on December 3rd. That morning, Archie informed Christie that he had no intention of remaining married to her and would be spending the weekend with his mistress. It has been argued that his actions led to three possibilities for Christie's actions that day. One, she left the house in a traumatized state of mind, which resulted in a car crash and amnesia. Two, she left her home with the intent of framing her husband for her murder. Or three, Archie planned something terrible to get out of his marriage. Now, here's the odd thing. Before leaving her house that night, Christy wrote three letters. One to her secretary, Charlotte Fisher, one to Archie, and one to Archie's brother, Campbell. The first letter to Charlotte was just a message about scheduling, but no one will ever know what the letter to Archie said, as he burned it immediately after reading it, which from a police standpoint was very suspicious. As for the letter to Campbell, the police noticed that the letter was posted on Saturday morning, the day after Christie vanished, and it too was missing since all Campbell could present them with was an empty envelope. He claimed that the letter said she was visiting a spa, but it is believed that he burned her letter as well. This begs the question, what were in those letters? Did Christie really have a breakdown that resulted in amnesia, or did Archie and his brother decide to take matters into their hands? 
and free Archie from the marriage by any means necessary. Until deciding that it was the worst idea after seeing the response to Chrissy's disappearance, they tried to backtrack. Unfortunately, we will never know what really happened. However, one thing is very obvious, and that is that it would be completely possible for a person like Christy, who is still madly in love with her husband, upon finding out that he no longer loved her, but was in love with someone else, would be highly affected, and this would be reflected in her writing. So now that we've talked about her disappearance, what do you think about Christy's disappearance? Do you feel that any of the theories are possible? I agree with you. I think it most likely that she probably was extremely traumatized and wandered off, was shaken up even further by a car accident, and things just deteriorated from there. Mm -hmm. I think if she was going to try and frame her husband for murder, she would have done a better job. Absolutely. It's kind of back and forth between she left the house very upset, possibly with the yes. idea of committing suicide, then the attempt just kind of scared her out of it. And she went, yeah, no, we're not going to do this. And then just wandered off. However, based on the type of person Archie seems to be, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he did something stupid and then went, oh, shoot, maybe we shouldn't go this path. Did they ever check her car for tampering? Probably. My guess would be if Archie and his brother were going to try and do something, it's more than likely they would have like drugged her and then later on got rid of her. More than likely it would have reached the drugged her state, which would explain the amnesia status of her. But I don't know how far Archie would go since there are some rumors that he is not the most respectable of people. He was cheating on his wife. That's not exactly a golden start. That is true. That is true. <laughs> and I don't know. I just feel like if he was going to get rid of her, he should have done a better job. To be fair, I think at this point, Archie's the type of person who he's very much like the male murderers in her books, where they have an endpoint they want to achieve. They don't completely think it out because it's more fastest way to the possible ending I want. <laughs> well, he should have thrown her in the chalk pit himself instead of what, drugging her. And then what was step two supposed to be exactly? You get her out of the way until the heat is off and then you murder her quietly when nobody's looking is... Quite possibly. This whole plan just seems... <laughs> It makes it sound like he was just extremely incompetent if this was what ended up happening. To be fair, since this man thought, I'll just tell her what I want and she'll do it and then she'll give me most of her money and custody of the child and then that'll be that, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> Did they understand how women thought at all? I mean, nope. Okay, and now that we've looked at Christie's disappearance, let's take it a step further. Was the creation of Christie's beloved character, Miss Marple, created as an instrument of revenge against her husband for his infidelity? Or is she just what Christie said she was, a character based off her grandmother and her grandmother's friends? It's easy enough to believe that Christie was telling the truth and that her character was based off a group of nice old ladies she'd known in her childhood. However, if Miss Marple has taught us anything, it's to never believe what anyone says and that nothing is what it appears. The timing and the themes within the Miss Marple books tend to lead readers and researchers to believe that Miss Marple came into existence as a way for Christy to help deal with the trauma she experienced during 1926. The character Miss Jane Marple and her village of St. Mary Mead came into existence in December of 1927, exactly one year after Christy's disappearance. She appeared in 12 novels and over 20 short stories, such as The Body in the Library and Nemesis. Some researchers, such as Peter Keating, have argued that with the character of Miss Marple, Christie's focus changed from what was seen in her other books. With her other characters, such as Perot and Tommy and Tuppence, the reason behind the crimes varied and included things such as class disdain, snobbery, and racism. However, with Miss Marple, the motivations of the killers are slightly different. In his book, Agatha Christie and Shrewd Miss Marple, Keating claims that Miss Marple's mysteries always contain some aspect of sexual attraction or depravity. 
He argues that jealousy, deceit, and the bitterness of rejection were emotions that Christie had experienced firsthand. Gee, I wonder where. <laughs> Therefore, Miss Marple being a character that was created during a time when Christie was going through a very messy divorce to a man she's still head over heels for resulted in Miss Marple's stories centering around casual love affairs, unhappy marriages, divorce, and difficulty of choosing between reliable and unreliable suitors. In many of the Miss Marple stories, you'll find older men manipulating young girls, which is what Christie came to feel her husband had done with her. In fact, if you look at the couple's courtship, Archie was the type of man that a girl's parents at the time definitely did not approve of, as he had no money, job, prospects, or home. Yet he still managed to convince her to marry him. Now, this is interesting due to the fact that in a lot of Miss Marple stories, such as At Bertram's Hotel, Caribbean Mystery, and Nemesis, you will find underlying themes of young girls who had been talked into marrying unsuitable suitors against their parents' wishes, leading to disastrous or sometimes even murderous endings. This makes me think that after Christie's marriage ended, she had an I should have listened to my mother moment and realized she really should not have married Archie, and as a result ended up showcasing this as a theme in her Miss Marple books. In this way, Archie may have wound up inspiring every unsuitable suitor or murderous husband in the books. You've got to ask yourself, why is it that you find the themes of divorce, sexual manipulation, and depravity, and the Victorian tendency to think the worst of everyone, only in the Miss Marple books rather than in all of her books? So, could it be that Miss Marple's origin is a combination of both theories? The older ladies she knew combined with what she knew unworthy men were capable of? Moreover, did she create Miss Marple as a kind of revenge voice? A way to tell the world about her anger, frustration, and pain over the trauma that she suffered in 1926 from her husband's infidelity and the end of her marriage? Now, keep in mind that during the Victorian era when Christie was growing up, women, especially genteel English women, were not allowed to show emotion. It was a social expectation that women at this time were never allowed to show anger or sadness, and they were definitely never allowed to cause a scene. Women were expected to act in control of themselves and to accept whatever their husbands, fathers, or brothers decided for them. Essentially, the nearest male relative is in control. Pretty much. Therefore, when Archie told her that he wanted a divorce, he fully expected Christie to just agree to whatever he said. So although privately she told him no, publicly she would never say a word. Even when they finally did go through that very messy divorce and custody battle over their daughter, she never once spoke out against him. The only time women were able to express themselves during this era was after they'd reached a certain age and become elderly ladies. Of course, even then they still had remained largely unemotional. Think Dame Maggie Smith as the Dowager Countess in Downton Abbey. Once you reach that age, you can kind of say and do whatever you like as long as you do it in a proper fashion, because you will only be viewed as a nosy or befuddled old lady and viewed as largely unimportant. So since Christie was only 38 when she divorced Archie, she wasn't old enough to fall into that category and give him a piece of her mind without risking being considered hysterical or over-emotional and hurting her own reputation. This makes us think that Miss Marple could easily be a combination of the stereotypes about elderly Victorian women and of Christie herself, using her character and that character's ability to speak out as a means of revenge. Christie always argued that Miss Marple was based on her grandmother and her grandmother's friends, commenting that although these women were always very cheerful, they always expected the very worst from everyone and everything. And in most cases, they were proved right. This was mostly due to the fact that they noticed and observed everything, along with the fact that since they were only viewed as just old ladies, they were seen as either silly or harmless, and nobody paid them much mind. But despite her claims, there were a lot of similarities between Miss Marple and Christie, such as both women knowing about hospitals and dispensaries, both women being devoted to elderly parents, and both women having had painful love affairs when they were just silly girl. They also both possessed deceptive sweetness, the shy benevolence and apparently demure personality was just a mask, a cover for inner steel. So Miss Marple, who is essentially a stereotypically befuddled older lady who can say what she wants when she wants, as long as it's delivered unemotionally enough and with proper upper-class language, is also a parallel of Christie herself, sharing some of the same characteristics and life experiences as her creator, which lends new meaning to the themes that are found in her books. 
These themes, which give evidence to the fact that Christie was using Miss Marple as a means for revenge. Throughout all of the Miss Marple books, you will see seven different themes that continuously pop up. Affairs, unhappy marriages, older men manipulating young girls, husbands betraying their wives, husbands murdering their wives because they can't get a divorce, and unsuitable suitors. Every single one of these themes can be found at some point in Christie's life, as something she experienced, felt, or thought after her divorce. It's interesting how Christie was able to use Miss Marple as her voice of revenge. If you look through these works, you will notice a number of different quotes that show her anger about the path her life had taken. For example, in her first Miss Marple book, Murder at the Vicarage, published in 1927, she wrote, Marriage, I have always held, is a serious affair, to be entered into only after long deliberation and forethought, and suitability of tastes and inclinations is the most important consideration. She seems to be stating two things here. First, she is telling the world that she regrets the fact that she let Archie talk her into marrying him so fast. Christie had met Archie in 1912, and they were married in 1914, a little less than two years later, which for that time was extremely fast. Heck, even nowadays, marrying after just two years of knowing somebody? Mm-hmm. Some people spend longer than that planning the wedding. The second thing she seems to be saying is that had she thought about it more before marrying Archie, she wouldn't have done it, as they were very different people. Then, in her eighth Miss Marple novel, The Mirror Cracked From Side to Side, Christie writes, why shouldn't I hate her? She did the worst thing to me that anyone can do to anyone else. Let them believe that they're loved and wanted, and then show them that it's all a sham. This looks like a pretty obviously pointed dig at Archie for what he did to his wife. Up until he revealed his true colors to her in 1926, Christie had no idea that their marriage wasn't a happy one, and thought he felt the same way she did, as she was deeply in love with him. So the infidelity and demand of divorce took her completely by surprise, and at the time she was unable to express this pain directly to Archie, the public, or the courts. Finally, in her last Miss Marple novel, Nemesis, which was published in 1971, you will find two quotes that are the most telling. In the first one, Miss Marple states, One of my names is Nemesis. I think you know, you're a very educated woman. Nemesis is long delayed sometimes, but it comes in the end. It can be argued that Christie is stating that although she could not get her justice or vengeance at the time, or publicly, that she would get it in the end and that it would last. And honestly, as her books have outlasted time, Archie will never be able to escape this revenge. The second quote states, who was there to guard youth from pain and death? Youth who could not, who had never been able to guard itself. Did they know too little, or was it that they knew too much and therefore thought they knew it all? This seems to be a lament to herself about protecting the young from being preyed upon by unworthy suitors, which leads many to feel that it showed her regret for not listening to her family when they told her not to marry Archie when she was young. These quotes, therefore, all seem to demonstrate that Christie was using Miss Marple as a means for revenge, by using the character as a voice to not only tell the world exactly what she thought about what her husband did, but also as a means of speaking out against what she saw as the injustices that were being done against women like herself, during a time when women were expected to be proper ladies, who showed little to no emotion and did exactly as they were told. So, now that we've talked about the ideas, theories, and themes behind the character of Miss Marple, do you agree or not that Miss Marple was a tool of revenge? I am totally going to go with this theory. It's definitely a way because at that time, it was definitely you don't make a scene. You don't show emotion. You control yourself. You go with what you're told. It's a very Victorian idea. You're so repressed. Yes. And the idea that she is able to take this character who didn't exist before all of this happened mm -hmm. and use it as a way to tell the world basically how she was mistreated and all the things she wants to say to Archie 
and all the warnings she wants to give youth and all this stuff. Because unfortunately at this time, her mother did pass away. So she didn't have that older female figure that can get away with saying the backhanded compliments and the snarky comments and just be like, oh, I'm sorry, was that rude? And it's just amazing. And it's completely hysterical because you have to go, how did a woman of Agatha Christie's standing with basically no family left to support her, to back her up, especially because her father died when she was very young. She didn't have any siblings. And I think, I don't even remember if she had like an uncle or something that could stand up for her. Her last living relative dies. And then four months later, her husband says he's dropping her flat. Pretty much. It's confusing how someone in her place would be able to go to a British court and literally get everything, not have to pay her husband anything, got full custody of her child. So it makes you wonder, okay, how did she do that? Was it because she was famous? Or was it because Archie did try to pull something when she disappeared? Or was it because she had something on Archie that makes you wonder, did she threaten to go, you know what, I will become the hysterical woman. I have the means to just make you regret everything. Depending on the blackmail, she might not even have had to ruin her own reputation to bring mm-hmm. him down. Because you have to go, there are other means that Christy could have taken to expose every because she was that famous. She could have gone to every tabloid in London and they would have printed a story about what her husband did to her. But yet she takes the very Victorian path and basically backhand compliments him all over her writings. And everybody at this time, since her disappearance was so famous, since she was so famous, her stories were so famous, Mm -hmm. you have to go, everybody knew who she was talking about. Everybody knew what was going on. So she basically created a situation where she could slander him. She could run him through the mud, but he couldn't do anything back about it. He could not go and say that it was lies, it wasn't true and all this because everybody knew about his affair. In fact, his mistress, her family found out and they took her out of the country for a year. Wow. And so you have to go, this means of revenge for her is just genius. That's because she never explicitly named him, so he can never claim slander or anything, because technically we all know, but Mm -hmm. she never stated, so. She came out of this basically looking like the proper English lady, and he came out of this just looking horrible, and there's nothing he can do for it. And you have to laugh because her books are, they're not going away. Her (laughs) revenge on him is going to last for eternity, and no one's going to forget it. There was a bet in the movie The Knight's Tale, mm-hmm. supposedly, where they've got Chaucer. He gets uh, in trouble over a debt with these two guys, and he talks about how, all right, well, you got your money back, but my revenge will live on. I will eviscerate you in fiction. I was naked for a day. You will be naked for all eternity on the mm-hmm. page. It's funny because throughout her entire life, she never once mentioned her disappearance. She refused to talk about it. She never allowed it to be brought up or anything. And her second marriage wasn't that I'm in love with you so much. I love you more than you love me type of thing. It was a very comfortable, we're friends first type of thing. And so in her other books, it even bled a little into some of her Perot books Mm -hmm. where it points out that for one spouse to love the other more than the other loves them back is super dangerous. And it's just interesting the way she was able to pull it off and streamline it so that she comes across as the very proper lady and that, no, I'm not doing anything wrong at all. What are you talking about? 
Technically, she never did. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder, did those old ladies she knew growing up give her some advice? Right? It's too bad her grandma didn't live longer. She would have eviscerated that man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there would have been no survivors. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It would have been very entertaining. Like I said, it's just like watching Maggie Smith as the Dowager Countess in Downton Abbey. She's very proper and very ladylike and does everything she's supposed to, but yet she's got this underlying level of sarcasm and stark that is just amazing. You could cut somebody down to size with, like a sentence <laughs> and still just be incredibly proper and you can't touch her oh yeah oh yeah absolutely absolutely yeah taking one of those old ladies who can do that and using that as her voice mm -hmm. to be able to cut her husband into shreds was brilliant oh yeah oh yeah Okay, so now that we've looked at Miss Marble as a possibility of revenge and at Christie's disappearance, let's open the topic up a little more. Do you have a favorite Christie novel or detective? I do love pretty much all of them because I am terrible at figuring out who done it, so it's always a fun surprise. It's always interesting. It's always it always makes sense at the end like it's supposed to and everything lines up. But my favorite character has always been Miss Marple. Perot is very fun to watch, but Miss Marple is just is not your idea of anybody who should be in this role. She's just this fluffy, fluttering little harmless old bitty. She just seems like this adorable little grandmother character who should be tending her garden, who you just don't really think anything of, and she just wanders in and out of conversations, just investigates stuff because she likes to gossip, and then next thing you know, she's like pinning a murderer with a glare, going, that one detective. <laughs> that escalated. She's the most dangerous person in any of her books. I mean, don't expect it at all. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think my three favorite detectives are definitely Miss Marple, Perot, and then Inspector Battle. And if I had to pick one book for each of them, I would say my favorite Miss Marple is Nemesis. My favorite Perot is Murder on the Orient Express. My favorite battle is Towards Zero. I'm like, battle is very, very subtle. You have the intelligence of Perot, but not any of the selfishness or the I'm amazing type of thing. Ego? Yes. You don't have any of the ego. Okay. What are some of your most favorite Christie films or TV adaptions? I always like watching Murder on the Orient Express. I think that's probably one of her most clever. I started with And Then There Were None. We read that in high school. That was the first one of her books I'd ever been near, and it just completely threw me because there's no way you would ever have guessed this is the killer. Mm -hmm. But it was also said that there's no way you could. True. And it, it seemed a bit of a stretch. Mm -hmm. So I tried some of her other ones, and it's always interesting, but Murder on the Orient Express was just such a setup. It's so completely left field of what you'd expect. Mm -hmm. But it's just fascinating the way it works. Yeah. I will have to say I love David Suchet as Perot. He is very entertaining to watch in that role, yeah. Um, yes. I've recently watched the Death on the Nile with Kenneth Branagh, and although if I take away the book purist in me, it's a good adaption, I still will argue against that Branagh as his character Perot does a lot of things Perot would never actually do. I agree with you there. It's an interesting take, but it's not very true to the character and the stories. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have to say Joan Hickson is my favorite Miss Marple. I just love her so <laughs> much. Though with the later ones for Julia, they changed the storylines enough because at that point they're inserting Miss Marple into books she's not actually in. Yes. And they changed it so much that it is absolutely nothing like the storyline anymore. So it's entertaining to watch because it's like a completely different thing. 
That's true, and they have to speak it for TV. Mm -hmm. It's not quite a brand new mystery, but it's just off enough that it keeps you guessing, even if it's one you've read a couple of times. Mm -hmm. It makes it a little more fresh. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to play the, is this as good of a twist, though, or did you just mess with this? (laughs) True, true. I know some of the recent adaptions that they've come out with, like Ordeal of Innocence and stuff, Mm -hmm. they went as far as... I'm okay with them changing it a little bit, but they went as far as they completely changed who the murderer was for that one. And I made it like five seconds in. I'm like, nope, can't do this. Can't do it. Let's see. Some of the other ones I like is in season four of Doctor Who with David Tennant. There's one where I think it's called the Unicorn and the Wasp that Christy shows up herself and it goes about trying to explain her disappearance. So in that one, she got stung by a giant space wasp. And I'm like, well, if you want to put it in a situation where she doesn't remember, we're not just going to talk about this that's the way to go (laughs) i think one of the other ones i like is in 2004 there was an anime called agatha christie's great detectives perot and marple where it puts marple and perot together miss marple's niece is working as a assistant to perot so they get together and solve crimes together and they did this so well and so perfectly i think it's right up there with studio ghibli's sherlock hound for me that i just love it so much You can find it on YouTube. You will have to read subtitles, though. I can see these two characters having tea together and terrifying everyone. (laughs) (laughs) That's the interesting part. That's really what happens. The one I find hilarious, though, is the board game Clue is based off of And Then There Were None. Really? Yeah. And so the movie adaption in 1985 that starred Tim Curry, (laughs) Madeline Kane, and Christopher Lloyd, that is based off And Then There Were None. And I'm like, I love that movie so much. It is so good. It is hilarious. And I love how at the end it's just... Like, did it happen like this? It could have happened like this. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because they (laughs) did that way because they wanted people to come back, try and watch all three separate endings that they released. I mean, it makes sense. It does. I'm like, I never realized that the board game and everything was based off of her works. That's kind of interesting. For mysteries as a genre, are there any authors or books that you would recommend to people? I really like Rex Stout's character of Nero Wolf. There was an A&E series about it a few years back, and those were all excellent. It's not one that I see on shelves very often, so I haven't read very many of the stories themselves, but the show itself was great. It was really fun watching this great big super cranky detective who never leaves the house, who's just very magisterial and sends out his his leg man, the smart aleck Archie Goodwin, to go and do the the usual detective walkabout where he he interrogates subjects, he looks for evidence and he brings everything back and pokes Nero to go use his his genius brain to finish everything up. It's just a very unusual dynamic, but it's really fun. (laughs) (laughs) It is a little like Perot. He sends out Hastings to do things while he sits there in the little gray cells work. Archie is somewhere between a main character and a sidekick and he's just so snarky. And just watching him and Nero Wolf interact is just so hilarious. These two really have no no reason why they should ever get along. And it's just, mm-hmm. they work really well together. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. I think if I had to pick, I would go with anything by James Rowlings. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does the Sigma Force and he's got a few others. And they are thriller mysteries that also bring in some kind of historical mystery. Like whatever happened to the expedition of Marco Polo, where they went from like having three ships to having one. And they like, no one knew what happened for like 12 days when they were out at sea. Wow. And those are really, really good. I also like the Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child books, the Pendergast series. Mm-hmm. They're really, really good. It's a nice mystery that seems to bring in some supernatural aspects but most of the time it's not, it's usually science. 
Another one I would definitely recommend would be the Miss Fisher murder mysteries. That's another one that's kind of set historically. Uh, Nero Wolf is, I don't know, between the 20s and the 60s. It spans a long period, I think. Miss Fisher is mostly in the 30s, and it's just awesome to see all the, the costumes and the way everybody acts and the, mm-hmm. the whole novel idea of a woman detective. Mm-hmm. And she's just, she should be sitting at home, you know, I don't know, being a society lady, and instead she's out with her golden gun tracking down murderers and putting the fear of God into everyone. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And being spectacularly fabulous while doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I also enjoy the DCI Banks series. And that one's really good. And I'm definitely a child of the 90s and 80s. And you've got like Magnum P.I. and Murder, <laughs> she wrote, oh, Murder, She Wrote. And uh, Charlie's Angels. <laughs> and Columbo. Oh, Columbo. It's really, really good. I love how he always just ferrets out the murderer. He's like mm-hmm. a bloodhound. He's there for four seconds and he just attaches himself to somebody suspicious and never lets go. Mm-hmm. Kind of pulls a Miss Marple. He just comes off as very fluffy and I'm completely harmless and then just nope. <laughs> I think that's just the actor. I love that actor so much. He just pulls it off so well. He really does do a great job at mm-hmm. that. He does that also in the Christmas movies where he plays Max the Angel. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely one of my go-tos that I just constantly rewatch is Midsummer Murder. And those are based off of the DCI Banks books. And then you also have Rosemary and Time, which mm-hmm. reminds me a little of Murder, She Wrote, where you have these two British gardener ladies who go around and fix up people's gardens, but everywhere they go, they find a dead person. I love how in one episode of Murder, She Wrote, she was at some writer's convention and of course somebody dies. And then right behind her, she hears uh, one of the writers going, gee, Jessica Fletcher's here and somebody dropped dead. What are the odds? <laughs> I think of her stuff, my favorite one of all time is the Celtic Riddle, where she goes to Ireland. Yeah, that was I, cool. I love that one so much. Mark Shepard makes a random appearance as a guy who gives her a lift in a car. <laughs> I'm like, one of the kings of geekdom is the guy driving the car. <laughs> it is entertaining watching Murder, She Wrote Again now. I'm going, I know that guest star. Isn't that the chick from Friends? Mm-hmm. Or watching Columbo, I went, wait a second. That's Spock. It's it's as fun as watching Unsolved Mysteries and all of a sudden Matthew McConaughey shows up as, as a reenactor. <laughs> yeah, guest stars are fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially the British ones. You're always like, I know them from somewhere. Where do I know them? Because there's like 20 actors that just keep repeating. They do kind of cycle through a lot. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you everyone for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about this topic or just check out some of our wonderful mysteries, such as Agatha Christie's Body in the Library or Kylie Logan's And Then There Were Nuns, make sure to stop by the library or the library's next Library on the Go event. We hope everyone had as much fun as we did. Remember, the library's next Library on the Go event will be on Thursday, April 21st, and our topics will be mysteries and poetry. Please join us on the third floor of the Educational Services Building from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. We hope to see you next time. Bye! Bye.